Boy, keep your eyes open. An amazing year, over 600 inches. The backcountry forecast was extreme hazard at the mid and low elevations. I could feel the snowpack, I, it was talking to me. Welcome to episode 2.10 of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is presented by TAS Gazex, an avalanche of solutions. With additional support from Black Diamond Peeps, Live, Ski, Repeat, and 10 Barrel Brewing. Here's to living it up with a beer in hand. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. I'd like to thank all of you, listeners and followers of the podcast, for your continued support. When I started this podcast over a year ago, I wasn't sure how well it would be received. I had a ton to learn about recording, editing, and producing a podcast. I'm still learning every time I put out a show. Every time I hear from one of you, it fires me up to put out the best possible show I can. While the format has changed a bit over the last year, I hope that it is evident that the goal remains the same. I hope the interviews provoke thought, discussion, and are also entertaining. Share your thoughts with me about how you think the show is going. You can email me through my website, www.theavalanchehour.com, or hit me up on Facebook or Instagram. I'm at the Avalanche Hour Podcast. It seems that we've been stuck in the same old weather pattern lately, with a strong ridge off the Pacific coast blocking any moisture from reaching, well, at least my current location. There are certainly regions that are reaping the benefits of this pattern. British Columbia, the PN Dubs, and Montana seem to be in the flow. Send it a little south, please, and thank you. temps got you down maybe it's time to make your voice be heard go check out www.protectourwinters.org to see what you can do pow provides many valuable tools to help you educate yourself voice your political opinion and there's even a carbon footprint calculator on their website to help you evaluate your impact consider donating to pow while you're there Crack a cold 10-barrel pray-for-snow beer to have 1% of their profits donated to protect our winners. All proceeds from my podcast merchandise sales from now until the end of April will be donated to protect our winners. Check out www.theavalanchehour.com to buy a hat, 
can koozie, or stickers, and do your part to protect our winters. I'm excited to share this episode with you. You'll hear an interview I recorded this fall with Mike Ream, who is the head of snow safety at Jackson Hole Mountain Resort and a forecaster for the Bridger Teton Avalanche Center. Mike and I talk about some of the challenges and rewards of forecasting for both a ski area and the backcountry. He highlights some memorable weather and avalanche events from 2017, and he talks about some of the avalanche mitigation tools available to him and his team at Jackson Hole Mountain Resort. We round out the hour with Mike sharing some stories and advice to young avalanche professionals. Before Mike's interview, we'll hear from John Copey, who's a quality engineer from Black Diamond and Peeps. John talks about some of the highlights of the Peeps Beacon line. All right, all right. Way too much talking for me. Here's John. All right, I'm here with John Copey. He's a quality engineer from Black Diamond Equipment, um, and he focuses on snow safety products within the Black Diamond line. And we're here today to talk about uh, Peeps Beacons. Welcome, John. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah. So, John, I was hoping you could just run us through the whole Peeps line that you guys offer. Sure. Um, so we've got we've got our classic DSPs that got a, a refresh um, a year or two ago. We got the DSP Sport, which is, you know, the everyday user, the classic, um, you know, rec, rec user beacon. And then we got the DSP Pro, a few more features, a little bit more um, range. And then um, and then we've got the newest one in the lineup, which is the DSP, uh, it's the Peeps Micro. It's the smallest three antenna um beacon that peeps offers and um some of the other features that we that peeps added into this thing is um bluetooth is kind of the biggest thing we've added Hmm. um with the bluetooth capability we can you can update um your beacon from your smartphone and then one of the more exciting things that peeps actually just rolled out with in their new app is they have training modules and some tutorials. So you can actually set up, assuming you have at least two peeps micros to play with, you can set up uh, these training scenarios through the app. And then there's also actual literature built into the app that you can read up on, which is kind of cool. You got your device manager where you can actually connect to your micro and you've got the training button there. and then under training, you have like training modes. You can set it up with your, your micro to do different scenarios. Um, and then you've got the practical knowledge button, which I think is pretty sweet because you click on that. And it's just got it's got a bunch of different just mini lessons hmm. with uh, some pictures and stuff. So understanding the field lines, like how a beacon tracks with the three antennas, um, fine search, pinpointing, shoveling basics. Just stuff, you know, to brush up on any time of the season, but especially right now. So even if you don't have a peep speak and it's kind of cool just to have the the little training, training points. Yeah, that seems really helpful. Yeah. 
So, John, let's circle back a little bit and talk about the flagship DSP Sport and Pro and highlight some of those features. Um, So the the biggest features really between the all the whole lineup of um, Peeps Beacons is the circular radius um, and the fact that the Sport, uh, I believe it's 40 meters um, circular radius and the DSP Pro is a 60 meter radius, um, which is on the top end of all beacons on the market, really. Both Sport and Pro have the flag um, to for multi-burial uses. And then the DSP Pro works with our um, the TX600 accessory beacon, um, which works on a different frequency than your typical beacon. This is the little beacon you would put on your dog I mean, you could potentially put it on your snowmobile or whatever and then um, using this little button above the flag you can switch modes to then go look for your your dog or your snowmobile or whatever you put it on you know and that's important because you want to find your partner first exactly. and then your dog or your snowmobile yep. second exactly or third or fourth or right sure whatever your priority is Hopefully that's not the case. Yeah, right. Something went wrong then. Exactly. Um, and the DSP Pro also has an inclinometer. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, – I haven't been using that personally as much as I, I should, uh, but it is a pretty sweet little feature. Um, with the right button combo, you just throw it on the slope, and there's no second guessing, oh, is this you know 38-degree slope or is this a 30-degree slope? Thanks, John. Make sure to check out all of Black Diamond and Peeps products at blackdiamondequipment.com. Now we drop in with Mike Ream. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for sitting down with me today. Pleasure. I'm psyched. Yeah. Mike, I was hoping you could just give us an introduction to yourself, some history of your your career and, and where how you got to where you are today. Well, it all started uh, with a T-bar in Pennsylvania. But I really took a liking to skiing and went to University of Vermont where I got an engineering degree, mechanical engineering degree, which kind of actually is, plays a role in what I do today to some extent. And uh, picked that because of the skiing and then couldn't be an engineer right away. So I had to come out to Jackson Hole because it was really awesome in the movies and, and see what skiing out here was all about. I tried some places in Colorado and really wanted to ski Jackson and Fell, a, fell in love my first season here in the late 80s. And, uh, you know, when, when that season ended and people said, man, that was a tough sn- snow year. It didn't snow that much. And I had had the best skiing in my life. I kind of made the decision to stay for a few more. And here I am almost 30 years later, still skiing Jackson and, and loving this area and community and the people. And just a great place to be. Yeah. So, so what are some of the roles you play within the avalanche community? So as I um became a longtime resident here. I started skiing the backcountry as well as Jackson Hole Mountain Resort. And that back then we did not have an open gate policy. We barely skied the backcountry off the off the resort. So we did a lot of backcountry off Teton Pass, some in the park, and uh, that's Grand Teton National Park. 
And uh, about that time, too, we people started doing skiing in Alaska, and it was a lot of Jackson pioneers, uh, Doug Coombs, the Hunt brothers, the Zell brothers. Everybody was starting to migrate in that direction, and I, I fell into that as well. And as, as time went on, I became, uh, at that same time, I also became a ski patrolman here with Jackson Hole Mountain Resort. And uh, that has kind of morphed into all of those things play a factor now because I'm uh, head of snow safety. I'm the snow safety supervisor here at the Jacksonville Mountain Resort for the ski patrol. And I also am a longtime forecaster for the Bridger Teton Avalanche Center. Uh, we have a pretty unique relationship we can talk about in a minute um, between the resort and the forest service here. And uh, so at this point, I'm head running the snow safety in the resort and still assist with the Bridger Teton Avalanche Center. And in the spring or when time allows, I also still guide, heli ski guide in Alaska for Tordrillo Mountain Lodge um, and uh, have worked for several different places up there part time because I make Jackson my home and work here first. And then how do you fill out your summers, Mike? Oh, I have a fly fishing course uh, like, like most. Uh, of us avalanche pros we have to do something in the summer and um i have a fly fishing company here in jackson Hole called grand fishing adventures got a great crew and fish it up here on the snake in the green awesome well yeah it's a a a pretty abrupt start to winter it seems like here in early november um you know i I drove over the pass the other day and and, uh tons of tracks on teton pass we have had an we we love our Indian summers here, and we didn't get one. Um, it we've had quite a bit of snow. It's melted a few times, but up on high elevation, anything with a north aspect almost from from west to east has snow on it from um, from early in the season. And then just this past weekend, you know, it's November sixth now, and just this past weekend we had almost forty inches of snow with four inches of water. So even uh, slopes that didn't have snow are now well covered certainly well above average the skiing's been great uh teton pass was outstanding this weekend and and we were poking around up on the hill the last couple days here at the resort too and really great coverage for early season yeah and when when you say early season storms we're we're talking like late september right yeah late september and all through october yeah it's amazing um so mike you mentioned the relationship between the bridger teton avalanche center and jackson hole mountain resort could you expand on on that relationship in terms of avalanche forecasting a little bit? Yeah, so many people don't don't realize um, or remember the history that a lot of these big mountain avalanche um, or ski resorts with with uh, avalanche terrain were really tied into the Forest Service because the Forest Service used to actually do the mitigation work and run the avalanche program at these ski resorts. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, historically, guys like Yuri Chris Johnson um, were up here running, you know, with with artillery and explosives. We're running this early, um, early avalanche mitigation. And as time went, the Forest Service, rightly so, decided these are, you know, these ski areas need to handle this themselves. It shouldn't be their burden. It should be the ski areas. And some places that was an abrupt change. And here it's been, um, thankfully, really a slow change. And we've always had even in the, always had a close relationship in the seventies when uh, the avalanche center for the forest service started putting out daily bulletins resulting from a couple of um, young men who died, very young men who died, you know, skiing in the, in the back country. 
um, you know, they basically these guys who are in there working every day at the ski resort with their head in the snow and doing explosive testing, things like that could just, you know, spend a few hours each day as a group to put out these backcountry um, bulletins. So it kind of started with the ski air, with the forest service doing most of the work at the ski area. And then as, as funding and, and things change, um, the, the same, the same guys, the same team started the backcountry was doing the backcountry bulletins and, you know, at really limited expense to the forest service. And since that time, now the forest service avalanche centers have all morphed quite a bit. And, and I wouldn't say they're, uh, you know, they're, they don't have funding concerns because they do. They're most of them get support from nonprofits and, and things like that and need that support. Mm-hmm. But uh, they're certainly bigger entities on their own. And now we've got, you know, the Bridger Teton Avalanche Center here put, puts out forecasts for three different areas in the morning, does an afternoon bulletin. And as all the Avalanche Centers does a lot more research, education, um, things like that. But it's still can, maintains a close relationship with the ski area. Bob Comey is the director of the uh, Bridger Teton Avalanche Center and, uh, and still works and, and works with the ski area here, which is great because we get expertise and knowledge that's shared from both sides. Right. So, uh, so the forecast or the bulletin for the Bridger Teton Avalanche Center, that, that all comes right out of this office right here. where we're Right. Sitting. We all, we all work in, in, uh, in one facility and obviously for there's a whole lot of cost savings with that in computers, printers, staffing, all that, that kind of stuff is, but is, is great and obvious to anybody, I think. But what it really does is allow us to have good conversation about what's going on with, um, with the snowpack inside the resort, outside of the resort. Um, we also tie in here with the Jacksonville mountain guides who are backcountry guiding and, and, and giving us direct feedback. And then the, the other guide agencies, including the snowmobile guides up at Togedy all kind of look to us as, as a resource. And, you know, because, because we're all working out of one area and we call it the avalanche lab here, uh, it, it just allows better communication and it allows the community a better resource because if they call it and have, you know, they're likely to find somebody. Mm-hmm. So, so what does your day-to-day look like, or, or how do you kind of split your time between forecasting for the ski area and forecasting for the backcountry? Because you guys have a, a fairly unique open boundary policy where a lot of your users are exiting the ski area boundary and accessing the, the backcountry. So, so I would imagine in some ways it's kind of one and the same for, for forecasting um, for the backcountry and the in terms of your users, it's, it's kind of similar. It, it is, but we really do try to separate the message and separate um, our duties while we're doing them, mm-hmm. um, if that makes sense. If Chris McAllister is the lead forecaster for the for the Bridger Teton, for instance, and um, he might, you know, we're, we're talking in the morning and communicating, and then he may go up to Togety Pass during the day while I might be running the the – snow safety program here at the resort and i've got a we've got a great team here um so there's a lot of people working with me as well so um, both on the forecasting side and running the mitigation things um but at, at the end of the day we're, we're working together but we're also as far as the message goes we have an inbounds message which is from the ski patrol we have a, a backcountry message which is from the bridger teton avalanche center we post that those warnings at our gates 
um, you know, a, a side note to that is there's some variation to this, but most ski areas operate the way we do. Backcountry gates are backcountry gates. We've, we've gotten away from calling them side country. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no avalanche mitigation work done there, period. Um, the people need to be familiar with that terrain. Um, the, the rescue at our resort is under the authorization of Teton County on one side or Grand Teton National Park on the other. And although Ski Patrol assists in those and, and might actually take lead on a rescue, we also have to watch out for our crew. And, and there's no guarantee that we are coming to get anybody in the backcountry here. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's, that is, it's not the ski area. It is the backcountry. And we're not, we can't risk the safety of the workers. You know, whether or not they have families, it doesn't really matter. But we, uh, we need to make sure we're, we're making right decisions. And if somebody gets in trouble out there, they need to be taking that responsibility for themselves and understand that um, if it takes explosives for us to feel, feel safe before we go down into that area, that that's what we're going to have to do. Or it might be Teton County Search and Rescue, and they have the same issues. They need to watch out for the safety of their rescuers. And uh, it, you know, I just we always want to make that point that that rescue in the backcountry is not a given. Mm-hmm. Even if you have a helicopter and, and things like that, some areas are they're deemed unsafe to to avalanches we at a time we really can't send people in there to to get people so. right uh, mike can you talk about do you have a different mindset um for forecasting for the backcountry versus forecasting for the ski resort yeah you know mindset and strategies and and things like that certainly differ um we're giving as far as the bridge of teton avalanche center goes they need to give a, a message that is a regional message. And people often pick it apart. Oh, I think it was, you know, the hazard was overstated here, understated here. But they're not realizing that we're, the Bridge of Teton doesn't forecast for one slope in one drainage. You, we, get, we get varying snowfalls throughout the Teton range alone, and significantly varying from what Targhee or we may get uh, here in, on the west side excuse me, on the east side of the Tetons on any given day. So, you know, we, as, as the Bridge of Teton, you got to kind of look at the, it's a general forecast, and we're trying to point out what the problem types are, their likelihood, their sensitivity, their distribution. We try to put that out there in the message, but it's still general because we're co- covering such vast terrain. Mm-hmm. And you can get into, you know, you try to specify things, but at the end of the day, we have to be general, and we want to be accurate. We're not trying to be conservative to the point where we're saying it's high danger, we say high danger, we expect to see natural avalanche activity. Um, but, you know, people just have to understand that it's, it's, a broad, it's a broader statement and we have to be watching out for where people are going up and down um, a whole region or, or a forecast area. Um, and then when we're talking, so when we're talking about the resort, it's, it's totally different. You know, we never mitigate the backcountry. So we have to talk about all the laying through the snowpack until we totally think it's not a problem, where in the resort, we're trying to mitigate that hazard and remove it from the equation. Okay, um, It's impossible to do that flawlessly. It's, they're avalanches, and we work very hard to understand them, to understand their, um, their hazards, to mitigate them through explosives, keeping terrain closed, all these things that, you know, we're, we're mitigating people's exposure to the hazard 
inside the ski area, where outside the ski area, public for, avalanche forecasters, you know, are really just taking in a, a snowpack and, and human traffic to it. Inbounds, we're, you know, trying to get that avalanche, those, those avalanche hazards mitigated before we open terrain. Now, that doesn't mean we're not still worried about deeper layers and we don't have to think about what's going on deep within the snowpack. Um, anyone at pretty um, knowledgeable about avalanches will have heard about something in in Colorado or in Montana or here or Utah or California, these slopes that, that fail on layers that have been buried for days, weeks, months sometimes. So, you know, it, it's a challenge for us at the resort to try to monitor that and pay attention to it but it's a totally different it's it, it's a totally different strategy than than out of bounds out of bounds you're forecasting hazard inbounds you're trying to mitigate it and forecast it on, on a little bit more of a slope scale or micro scale i would think yeah totally so yeah we're totally talking scale and in, in inside the resort we keep jackson hole ski patrols blessed with having a a desirable job that people don't like to leave and um, they enjoy it. It's good camaraderie. It's a good group and we have low turnover. So generally speaking, and we try to keep people on a piece of terrain for multiple years. So if you're assigned, um, we have really about 10 different routes that we run. Most of the time it's snowing significantly and somebody will be assigned to one of those 10 routes for the season and sometimes for 20 seasons in a row. So they become intimately familiar with that terrain. So as we, as the forecasting team, are, are trying to give all these route leaders kind of the information or the whole patrol the information on what we think the hazard is, what the winds have done, temperature, what we're expecting for avalanche activity, and generally where, you know, we've got a smart crew, and they, they go out there and then, you know, we'll take – they, they will kind of hit it as hard as they want to, you know. We we give them advice and what we think the hazard is, but these guys have been doing this a long time, and they know that when the wind's out of a certain direction for a certain amount of time at a certain speed, that maybe this one spot is always loaded on those on those days, you know. So we provide all that information to them, and we really encourage our guys to, um, our team, guys and girls, to, to be... Uh, you know, to be making those decisions, understanding their terrain, and we keep that familiarity. Not people worry about complacency. Oh well, I'm on this terrain too often. You know, it's that's not that is not that is completely outweighed by the strength of somebody who's intimately familiar with the terrain and knows how to handle it with different weather. And then you trust your team, and you get feedback from them, and that that probably helps the forecasters have a better overall big picture. I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Whether we're talking about the Forest Service side or the ski area side. Um, our, uh, I was preceded by visionaries who kept um, anal records. And it has been a um, culture here that we want to know about what's, what, where the activity is and that we record it. Mm-hmm. So we have a 44-year data set of both weather and avalanches. And then that information as well is helping. So, yeah, these guys are giving us feedback. And then we're skiing around and trying to see that. Oh, you know, if somebody says, "Hey, you got to go see the sh- the the slide in Casper Bowl," you know, we'll go take a look at it, you know. But we get all this stuff in the in the in our database. In fact, we're having all the line all the patrolmen doing that now, um, and then we just kind of approve it and push it through rather than us trying to record everything ourselves. So, um, but that that isn't just helping us for today. 
and verifying, hey, we were we were right or wrong today, or this is what we expect tomorrow. That's certainly the the most primary thing. But we're also putting this in the database, and now we have the ability for. Um, we're switching it over to a web-based platform here at the resort so that any ski patroller can look up the storm in, that we hear about in 1986 and see how much it snowed and what the water content was and where the activity was on that day and how big it was. So we're putting all of this data in a database. So we had the, the, uh, the predecessors had the vision to keep this stuff, you know, by handwritten records. And then um, in the last 20 years, it's all been entered into the computer. Now we have all 44 years. We can do research on avalanche activity. We can use it for patrol training and things like that. So, yeah, we get the feedback from them, and it. But it's not just helping now. It's hopefully helping you know in the future as well. Yeah, it sounds like a pretty pretty effective operational working history there. Um, so, so you mentioned um, your patrollers. So, so they'll fill out like a route log after after they run a route. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, we are now having them individually do it. We have a you know a simple form set up on the computer, and they log where they put explosives, whether they did or didn't get results, and if they did get results, they're logging them under the um, uh, our format, which is pretty much similar. Pretty pretty much follows all swag guidelines. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Mike, I was hoping you can talk about some of the strategies you guys use within Jackson Hole Mountain Resort to mitigate the avalanche threat. I know you guys have a, a bunch of tools in the toolbox, and I was hoping you could just talk about kind of the right tool for the right terrain or the right avalanche problem. Yeah, I think you, you asked it. You asked it. Um, you asked it well there. The right tool for the right terrain and the right problem. It changes, right? So, I think for any of us, um, well, pretty much for for most ski areas with avalanche programs, the early season can be really tricky. And we really pay the most attention then because we haven't been addressing it. We're not intimate with it. And there's often early season weaknesses that are just being buried enough that we can get on them, right? So at that point, our mitigation strategies are very conservative. Um, our mindset is very conservative, right? We want to um, use a lot of explosives, use all of our tools and um, as the season goes on and you get the level of comfort, then you're, you're, you know, you can use, use a little more of the storm cycle you're dealing with, as, especially later in the season. As far as the tools go, um, well, I, I would have said we used to have them all, and by that I mean um, artillery, which we've, we, we have had 105 and 75 um, uh, recoilless rifles, or one recoil, one recoilless, but um, the... With the building of new lifts and structures, we have gotten away from artillery just because of the range that shrapnel can can technically fly. Just it, it you know you, you can't have shrapnel hitting your buildings and your lifts and things like that. It's it's dangerous. So we have actually gotten away from artillery, but not because they weren't effective avalanche tools, mitigation tools. They are great avalanche mitigation tools. It, it was more safety to other other infrastructure. But um, we have always used hand charges, which is um, the vast majority of what we in other ski areas do is actually getting out and, and addressing these things with, with explosives, g- addressing these particular train features with explosives with far more accuracy and detail than you can from a long distance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we have avalanchers. We used to have, um, we've, had a, we've had four different avalancher locations. We're kind of down to just using one now. 
Um, again, with, with lifts, also we get more access. So we can get to a lot of these places more safely than we could. And then also you don't, again, want to be shooting avalanches, which are just explosive rounds that are propelled by compressed gases. So it's not like artillery where it's encased in, in metal and, and, and high, high power velocity. These are compressed by gases and, and thrown up onto a slope. Um, what we've more recent advances are uh, gas X's. We have three gas X units up on what we call the headwall area. We are looking to get several more. They are fantastic tools. We test fired ours today. Um, and to be able to put explosives out on slopes that are a little harder to, um, to mitigate due to maybe access or size, um, they're just great. They're fantastic tools. They're expensive to put in, but inexpensive to operate. And then you get the ability to do explosive testing without putting your personnel and your staff out there. So they're great tools, and we hope for more of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess in addition to that, there's all the kind of in-between stuff. We do a lot of ex- um, uh, explosive uh, triggering explosives in the air is more effective than triggering them on the snow. So we have several cables and bomb trolleys or uh, explosive trolleys set up throughout the mountain too, so that we can deploy things again safely without putting our staff out onto the slopes. We'll get the initial um, tests done with air blasts using different mechanical devices. Mm-hmm. So with your Gazax, I mean, you're able to you're you're able to hit it at peak sensitivity too, right? from within a controlled environment. Are, are you right. So the gas X, what, what we want to do there is we can time it to when we think it needs to be done. So a lot of times we may be getting a lot of snow during a, during a day, we may start closing terrain because we don't want our guests skiing there anymore. We're starting to worry about avalanches building up. We don't have the ability to mitigate it anymore. Um, and when that happens, well, specifically on the head wall, at the end of the day, we can maybe initiate, you know, we'll initiate those exploders. We'll clear all the terrain below it after sweep and everybody's gone and we feel good that there's no human presence. Then um, we'll use those exploders and then we might be able to trigger smaller slides. We'd rather have more in a ski area. You want more smaller slides than waiting and having big slides. Um, it's that way you're just, you know, keeping that, that consequence, um, you're lessening your consequences when the slides are bigger mm-hmm. or smaller rather. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, that's the goal is get avalanches when it's, it is to try to run mitigation work when things are most sensitive, but not waiting till they're these big catastrophic slides, because then you have trouble, you know, negotiating safely to do the mitigation work. Sure. And I think, uh, you, you mentioned another strategy that people often don't think about is just merely terrain closures, right? Right. Um, so how do you guys assess that? Um, assess the need for terrain closures because uh, your Jackson Hole Mountain Resort is running a business. They're in the business of putting skiers on slopes. Right. So, so what what sort of strategies do you do during an ongoing event to assess that hazard? Well, I mentioned that we have a lot of experience in our crew, and that we keep people in that on that same terrain. So, we want to be opening terrain with. Um, you know, consensus style format. We want to hear from if, if uh, we want to hear from the forecaster that day, because you, our, our snow safety team is kind of broken up into forecasters and reduction leaders. Mm-hmm. So we want to hear from both of those leaders who are kind of more, you know, they're looking at the whole ski area 
and relying on then the root leaders and then the individual root members. And we want to hear from everybody, and, and certainly the supervisors as well. They they they've earned those positions because they've had a lot of experience as well. So you know the supervisors have get get a say in this. The reduction leaders get a say in it. The avalanche forecaster gets a say in it. The root leader gets a say in it. The root leader should also have, have talked to his team, you know. And uh, so we're getting out there. We're running mitigation work. We're seeing the storm come, you know. And before we open terrain, particularly early season, or if we have, if it's been closed because we're extra concerned with the avalanche hazard, then then we want to have, you know. And th- it sounds like this is that's a big complicated thing. It's really not that hard. You say, you know, you just check with everybody. Anyone have a problem with this? Everybody feeling good about it? Um, and, you know, the guys will respond. We had activity here. We, we, we saw what we wanted to see, um, you know. And, and likewise, when they say, yeah, this, we, we, need to, we need to address this further or wait, those are perfectly fine options. Mike, I was hoping to have you discuss how you've seen changes in backcountry use accessed from the resort over your time here well that's it's been dramatic uh when i moved here in the late 80s they didn't really have gates per se but they would allow access to the backcountry the ski patrol would when the backcountry forecasters had rated it at low at all elevations okay at some point um, the ski area, the legal counsel for the ski area, the way I understand it, said that that's really not, you know, you should go one way or the other, either close it or open it and don't have it based on anybody's opinion. Mm. And, uh, um, I'm, I'm proud that this ski area made the decision to say, let's open it. There was a lot of pressure there. A lot of people in this community want to think, say they were the one responsible for getting that to happen. Uh, it, there were a lot of people, and from the top people here at the ski area to the lowest patrolman, um, or the newest patrolman, I should say, <laughs> um, to, to a bunch of um, local residents, to Teton County, Search and Rescue was behind it. I mean, it was a lot of, a lot of people had a say in this, and a lot of, a lot of people all had buy-in that the right decision was to have an open gate policy. And uh, it's been awesome. So, you know, that change alone is going from, well, basically didn't occur to now you can go no matter how dangerous it is or how safe it is. Um, again, you know, we're not, nobody's mitigating hazard out there. Um, people get a false sense of security from skier compaction theories. Skier compaction certainly can help to stabilize the snowpack more than areas that aren't ski or compacted. That being said, that's not all the time. There's a lot of times that there's deep, weak layers that aren't being penetrated by anybody on, on skis. They're waiting for that bigger trigger. They could cut, still um, fail catastrophically, um, having climax avalanches or um, at least large avalanches, even though something's been getting skied all season. There was a great example of that up in Bozeman. Um outside of Bridger Bowl a couple of years ago, I mean, massive slide on, and everybody was constantly skiing it, thinking it was fine. And the forecasters up there at the Gallatin were saying, no one's penetrating this layer that's still down here. This thing is going to haunt us all season. And it did, mm-hmm. you know, so, you know, there's, you, people just have to be aware of those kind of s- scenarios. And then also 
when we get new snow, it can just be new snow on a sun crust that was formed yesterday because it was a nice day. Like skier compaction doesn't help with that either. It might have roughened up that bed surface a little bit or might not have, but, um, you know, people just have to pay attention to the conditions. What our biggest problem seems to be with this, with increasing, um, with these increasing, with increasing traffic and desires, more and more people want to go out the gates. I think they travel to ski areas expecting to go out the gates. And, um, so, you know, you've got increased traffic and, it certainly, what we try to is do is make sure that people are making good decisions and have, you know, both the rescue knowledge, the training to make good decisions. They're going out with good people. They understand the terrain. A lot of our incidents um, in the backcountry seem to, this isn't just outside the ski area. This is um, snowmobiling down south in the Wyoming range. It, it, it really doesn't matter what we're talking about. People tend to, um, tend to, make more aggressive decisions or they they talk themselves into conditions changing when it's sunny mm-hmm. and they can see better they get some positive reinforcement by maybe seeing somebody ski something or ride something and then it's getting more and more aggressive whereas under the same weather patterns with the same backcountry avalanche bulletin of considerable or high or something they might not be doing that without the sun, but with the sun, they're starting to feel, you know, they, the envelope gets pushed a lot faster. And, and I think it's a really important safety message out there that if pe- people need to remember that the sunshine did not make it more stable. It didn't. And in fact, a lot of times it makes it less stable. Sure. Especially right after a storm. Yeah. I've always thought you guys do a great job here um, of getting the word out, whether it's having to push open a gate um, at a boundary and read the avalanche bulletin that's right in front of your face next to a skull and crossbones or whether it's uh listening to the tram operator on your way up to rendezvous um you know telling you if you don't know don't go um and have the proper gear and knowledge and be prepared for a self-rescue so i think you guys do a great job with that here of of getting that word out well thanks for hearing that because it's very hard for us because we continue to take different messaging measures because we do take it seriously. And it's hard to know uh, when you're being, if you're having any success, because you don't hear, you don't hear about the people that you turn around or that maybe make better decisions because you're doing that. All you know is the, the, the few that, that still get in trouble maybe by not paying attention to these, this messaging. And, you know, you mentioned the gate that, that is, effective right we we rope it so that you have to use gates to at, to leave the ski area and uh so that's a conscious move that at least they have to do that now we've noticed too that a lot of people just ski up and through it they open and go and, go, and they don't read any of those messages there so we have the the backcountry avalanche bulletin is is posted there in in detail a big needle saying what that rating is we also have you know all the warning you know signs noting that there's no mitigation out there, know your terrain, like, you know, it can result in injury and death, things like that. Um, we've put up things saying, you know, indicating that people have gotten into, you know, that we've had fatalities by pe- from people leaving these gates and to take it seriously. And, you know, all you can do is continue to try. Uh, messaging is difficult. Like I say, people get affected then by the, it's a sunny day, or they see six other people go blowing through it who might ski it every day. 
I might be going to terrain that's, uh, you know, they know that's kind of around and very safe. And then people say, oh, well, if they went, I'm going. And then they go and, you know, some of the terrain outside, just like the terrain in Jackson, we have a lot of cliffs, mm-hmm. um, a lot of rocky terrain, a lot of nice snow that ends in a, in a, all of a sudden the steep rollover rolls off to a big cliff. And um, none of that stuff is marked because how could, you know, the Forest Service mark one and not the other? It's not in the ski area. So it's that, you know, that's a real challenge out there. And um, we try on the messaging and we, we did post, put a, a camera up on one of our gates um, that was a newer gate that we put on with a lift three years ago. And it, it's actually a little reassuring that some we can watch that. And sometimes people do go up and you see them set, stand there and they read the sign and then they talk as a group. And anytime we're seeing that, we know that that group is whether a lot turn around, come mm-hmm. back, a lot still go through the gate, but it, it, it does seem to have some of maybe more effect than we originally thought and people actually taking it seriously. And that's a good time to remember to check your transceivers and, and talk about your group and what's the plan and where are you going? And, um, and we actually see that on the video some, so that was reassuring. Oh, that's pretty cool. Uh, do, you, do you have any data showing numbers of, of folks leaving the ski area? Have you guys ever uh, had anybody that post data it up? exists. Um, I, all I know is we've had increasing back into traffic. Yeah. I can say that safely, but I can't get into the numbers. I don't know them off my head. Sure. So, Mike, you guys had some a record-breaking season here last year in 2016-17. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about some some of those record-breaking snowfall amounts and significant weather events. Well, it was a an amazing year, over 600 inches. Um, we had some instabilities deep in the snowpack early in the season, and and even in the the backcountry here in the Tetons, I think we put that to bed around January 8th or 9th, which is really pretty early mm-hmm. um, due to us getting so much snow, we were bridging over those layers and just were getting, you know, just so unlikely to trigger something deep. Um, and it continued to snow. It's fantastic skiing. From an avalanche standpoint, generally speaking, when you're getting consistent snowfall like that, uh, you often, although, although you have to mitigate hazard at the resort consistently, your avalanche, you don't get the weak layer development and we end up with a um, uh, a, situa- a manageable situation um, just because we're not getting this weak layer development and we're not getting worried about bigger avalanches, but it takes a lot of hard work and, and diligence to stay on top of it as well and keep your mountain running and open. We certainly have a philosophy here that we'd rather get out there, mitigate the hazard, and have it open to the public, um, both because we're not allowing these deeper problems to develop and also because people want to go skiing here. They come here to ski our terrain, and we want to try really hard to have it open from that for them if we can safely. Mm-hmm. Um, what was unique about last year would certainly be the mid-February storm. Basically, it started snowing even harder around the evening of February 1st, and it just kept snowing, and it was snowing a lot. And uh, by February 7th, Teton Pass was closed, which was a Tuesday, and... Um, they'd had closures throughout, but at this point, avalanches were coming down that they weren't quite keeping up with, and they're trying to, you know, get the debris cleared, keep the roads open, but when that many slide paths are starting to move, it, it's, you know, it's a problem. It takes a lot of, lot of equipment, a lot of manpower, um, and then it got warm and continued to precipitate. On that night, on Tuesday the 7th, we had 
uh, a strong wind and warm snow event, almost terrain down here in, at the low elevations in the valley, um, caused 17 or 18, somewhere between 16 and 18 power lines to snap, bringing the main power out to Teton Village. Caused a state of emergency in the state of Wyoming. We had all of our hotels, restaurants, everything without power, condos, homes out in Teton Village. Um, clearly, it's hard to operate a ski area under those conditions when you don't have power for the lifts. Um, and when you talk about mindset and strategies, because of the hazard and because of the forecast of the storm continuing and continuing to warm, um, we were able to run lifts on auxiliary and a ski patrol. We um, conservatively kept trying to mitigate the hazard so that we didn't have really bigger problems later. So we were coming out here while there was no power and still, you know, running our routes, mitigating hazard, trying to stay on top of it so that when power was reestablished to the village, we weren't dealing with layers that had not been addressed that were, you know, many feet down. So we kept after it. It was a very unique experience um, from a from a community standpoint, in addition to Teton Village being without power, basically all the hotels closing and evacuating, um, Teton Pass was closed with the large rain and that occurred at lower elevations. Uh, Snake River Pat, Snake River Canyon closed, and Hoback Canyon was opening and closing. Um, as that storm that I mentioned, the highlight on Tuesday because of the power outages and the fact that that's when it got warm. Um, that Thursday, we did the the backcountry forecast was extreme hazard at the mid and low elevations and not at the high elevations, mm. which is it's rare for us to go to extreme hazard at any point. Certainly rare to go at at lower elevations prior to the higher elevations, and that that was accurate. That was the day that um, the other the two canyons started closing and many slides we're talking slides that have never before been you know recorded by the department of transportation we're hitting the roads both teton pass and snake river canyon and hoback canyon so it's a very challenging time for the community keeping trying to get generators in trying to keep roads open um trying to deal with the resort being closed uh it was it was definitely an interesting storm cycle in the month of february to kind of uh quantify that we had up at our rendezvous bowl study plot which is in the resort near the top right under rendezvous bowl we had 148 inches of snowfall and 18.2 inches of snow water equivalent that's a lot for us you know the california and and some maritime climates get you know big dumps we do not get snowfall like that mm -hmm. and uh, that's a lot of snow for us and certainly with that big event with the warming that occurred in the week of the um February 6th was caused a lot of problems. Um, we did have, there was a, a regional fatality on that Thursday during the extreme hazard day down out of the town of Alpine, a really well-known accomplished snowmobiler who actually taught avalanche safety and, and was a conservative in these conditions, was basically trying to stay out of avalanche terrain but still got himself into a, an area where a small, uh, relatively small slide piece of train came down from above. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, it was extremely hazardous at that point. Certainly a significant event. So what was the, what was your mindset like? Um, it, you mentioned that you guys tried to keep up with it as much as you could within the ski area. Um, 
how do you once those once the power was restored and lifts started running again, what was kind of the mindset of the of the patrol and your team going out to try and open up terrain after that? Yeah, well, it, it was because we had gotten out, stayed on top of it during the storm and kept our presence there, monitoring conditions, doing explosive routes, doing them slowly and carefully. It allowed us much more confidence on our decision-making to open terrain once that the power was restored. And um, management wasn't pushing us to open anything before we needed to, um, before we felt, you know, good about it. And, uh, uh, yeah, so it was good. We were really glad that we made that effort to, to, uh, to be out there and stay on top of that storm cycle. Yeah, I'm sure it was challenging at the time, but it sounds like it certainly paid off. Um, yeah, it was a time. It was a time to use to go very cautiously, though, where people were, because we weren't trying to open during those days. We were able to take a lot of time and, and move around in the mountains slowly, and then also certainly the having the gas X up on the head wall. Um, it we had because of the weather and the power. There were some some uh, challenges there that we had to overcome by moving generators around and things like that. But um, due to a great support through the whole operation of of the of the mountain resort, you know, we were able to fire those gas X's and, and not allow hazard to grow to a alarmingly big size up on the head wall where we don't have a lift to the top of. So. Right. Mike, I was hoping you could recount some uh, formative experiences within your career. I think it's helpful for people to hear about these, you know, whether it's an aha moment or uh, mentors that have helped you along the way. Um, just some of these watershed moments. Yeah, it, I think it, it, that that mentoring and sharing is a big cultural movement. I think in the in both patrolling and 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 basically any avalanche operations right now. And it's great because I think a lot. I think it's just the nature of 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 the era that a lot of us are now. All these guys who taught us, you know, our mentors are basically they're. They're over it. They're, they're, they're at an age or at a place in their life where they, they're not doing it anymore. And all of a sudden you lose this, these people that can tell you all these stories from, from you know, the 60s on and you're losing these chunks of time. And I, I, can, I can only encourage everyone to make sure that like we're putting some effort now into to maybe tracking some of these guys down and getting some of their stories um, and getting it in a format on the computer that is kind of, we're going to have a, uh, we have our ski area map and we're going to have a layer that has these incidences so that people can, um, you know, learn from these guys that the newer patrolmen never even had an opportunity to meet. Mm-hmm. And, and then I, you know, you don't want to be quoting a story that you don't really know all the details of. So we're, you know, try to, try to uh, record your institutional and operational knowledge is, is one thing that I'm passing on because that's, it's, all of our memories get bad, it seems, as we get older, and uh, we want to make sure we're not we're not forgetting things. Um, some events, I guess, that I could share with is, is um, have a pre-plan and your plan, and really watch deviating from it. Um, one of the one of the I was oper- working as a guide in Alaska at one point, and um, you have to. There's always chain of command and everything, and we had a meeting and we said we're not hitting a certain aspect and because of the surface hoar problem that's been there for weeks prior to my arrival and um, 
that was what the group decision was at the guide meeting. And I was the second guide out following the lead guide with this particular helicopter. And second run of the day, he leads down a northwest aspect. And I didn't think it was my place to call him on it. Even though I thought to myself, I thought we weren't skiing northwest. He's the lead guide. He knows what he's doing. And uh, sure enough, I made about two turns, and I I knew that this was not a place I wanted to be. I could just, I could feel the snowpack. I, it was talking to me. Um, I did a quick hand pit, and, you know, I triggered a slide. that I was committed at that point. I just had to get off the slope, and, and luckily, you know, didn't put my group at risk. But, um, yeah, as, as that avalanche occurred behind me, and, uh, you know, I was, I was able to not be caught by it, but that was one of those, you know, one of those moments where I thought, you know, this wasn't just poor, this was, th there were a lot of things that led to that being in that terrain, but it was so avoidable had we just stuck to the plan, to the good decision plan we had made and, and, you know, shame on the, shame on the other guide for breaking from that plan and shame on me for knowing it, not calling him on it. So, you know, using your voice, having a pre-plan all ties into that. All these classic things we hear about, um, but certainly using your voice. I mean, I knew I shouldn't, didn't want to be there. I followed him in. I didn't use my voice. He went in there after we said we weren't going in there. And, and, and you know, when you know there's a problem, you've identified it. You've identified how you're going to um, mitigate it. And that time it was through avoidance, right? And uh, and then you break from it because of the weather, or you feel good or it looks good. That's you know that's just something I, I can't stress enough. Like, don't talk yourself into changing your plan in the field. Plans are made for a reason. So. Yeah, and that's certainly translatable to recreationists. Um, you know, recreating in the backcountry, uh, utilizing a systems-based approach to having fun out there, but staying safe. Um, that seems like a really good point, Mike. Yeah, and I guess the other one that I like to share, um, I try, I don't have a personal experience myself with this other than witnessing it, is don't watch your motivations. Um, we've had several incidences in the Tetons where the signs were there in the morning that meant there were more hazard, be it the backcountry avalanche center putting out a higher hazard or knowing the snowfall or getting on the slope and and you know a lot of people are motivated because maybe they have saturday off and that's a day they want to go they make a plan with their friends it looks like this isn't gonna snow friday night or or whatever and then and and you're being motivated because it's your schedule because that's the day you you're you've set up with your family to be able to go into the mountains what, whatever it is or you and your friend can only do you've been planning on this for two weeks to have this day like really watch the motivation um and 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 making sure that your plan is 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 not made so far in advance it can't be changed sure so, so mike look, i'm going to ask you to think back to the first control route you ever went on and what advice would you give to a, a rookie patroller going out um you know they're looking to make a career out of this what advice would you give that rookie patroller going out on their first control route Boy, keep your eyes open and don't let the nature of dealing with explosives or dealing with early morning or anything um, 
start getting in the way of just being smooth and and conscientious. Ho hopefully, any all the patrols are are trying to set up so that new people are put with really experienced people and and good communicators and um, that they can take a role that is kind of a eyes open mouth shut role and just take in what these guys who've been doing this for 20, 30 years know um, and then ask the questions when it's appropriate. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, Mike, uh, is there some social media we can we can plug our listeners into um, to be able to keep tabs on, on the, the bulletin with the Bridger Teton Avalanche Center? Do you guys have any? Well, we have the... Um, the Bridger Teton Avalanche Center, again, with its tie-in with the with the resort, I believe we're the only place, for instance, that posts both their avalanche activity that's occurring inside of ski areas and outside. Both Grand Targhee and Jacksonville Mountain Resort will send their observations to Bridger Teton, who posts them on an interactive map so that people can see what's going on inside and outside. That's all on jhavalanche.org. It's a great resource. Some people say, oh, we don't care what goes on in the, in the ski areas. But that, that's, that's short-sighted because that is actually showing that new storm instabilities. If they're getting a lot of results with explosives, that exists in the backcountry as well, especially in these heavily trafficked terrain, right? And then... Um, so, the you know I, I I worry about social media and that sometimes it can understate the it's it can because of the brief messaging involved with social media a lot of times it uh, it gives it it's oversimplifying complex problems okay mm -hmm. um, so I definitely stir people to jhavalanche.org because it has um, you can click filters to look at stuff going on just in the backcountry or just at ski areas you can you can find out all sorts of information. Um, by looking, you know, using a computer and looking at the bigger picture and, and reading the weekly summaries and the forecast for the last couple of days and things like that. When you get into social media, sometimes people people sometimes want the like green light, red light scenario by that. So I don't want to talk about social media without that warning. Sure. Um, that being said, yes, uh, Instagram, Facebook, all tied to the to jhavalanche.org and the Bridget Teton um, National Forest Avalanche Center. Um, the you know photos new slides we just posted some we saw a big slide in Grand Teton National Park um, it was witnessed on Sunday when it was clearer probably occurred Saturday and uh, you know we get that up that that kind of event we're going to send pictures right to it sure awesome well Mike thanks a lot for taking the time to sit down with us today and and share your experience and your knowledge with the greater avalanche community we yeah. really appreciate it yeah I, like i said at the beginning it's a pleasure and obviously a passion um and getting the word out about just being thoughtful about avalanches i think is great yeah. awesome well cheers thank you There you have it. Thanks to John and Mike for taking the time to take part in this episode. Thanks to you for listening. If you like it, if you hate it, please take the time to rate and review the show on iTunes. Go do it now. Now. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Avalanche Hour Podcast. I'll have a bonus episode coming out before the end of the month. 
To find out more about this episode, subscribe to our newsletter to access the show. You can sign up on our website. You know where to find it. Thanks to the sponsors of our show, TAS Gazex, Black Diamond Peeps, and Ten Barrel Brewing. Music today was performed by Grammatic and Sun Squabby, with permission from the artists. Check out more of their tracks from a link on my website. Thanks to Mike T for our artwork. Check him out at www.miketea.com. The next regularly scheduled show will hit the airwaves on March 1st when I share an interview with the amazing Lynn Wolf. Lynn is a guide, educator, and editor of the Avalanche Review publication. Until then, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. <laughs>